We turn again in our Bibles to this 8th chapter of the book of Judges. And these short verses, really, verse 22 through 27. And we will look again, God willing, at these some of these thoughts. But we read together, first from Judges 8, 22. Then the men of Israel said unto Gideon, Rule thou over us, both thou and thy son, and thy son's son also. For thou hast delivered us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said unto them, I will not rule over you, neither shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. And Gideon said unto them, I would desire a request of you, that ye would give me every man the earrings of his prey. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a garment and did cast therein every man the earrings of his prey. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was a thousand and seven hundred shekels of gold. Besides ornaments and collars and purple raiment, that was on the kings of Midian, and beside the chains that were about their camels' necks. And Gideon made an ephod thereof, and put it in his city, even in Ophrah. And all Israel went thither, a whoring after it, which thing became a snare unto Gideon, and to his house. Turn with me again please. In your hymn book. And stand with me. Sing together number 590. Consider all my sorrows, Lord, and thy deliverance send. My soul for thy salvation faints. When will my troubles end? Yet I have found his good for me to bear my father's wrong. Affliction made me learn thy law and live upon my God. Had not thy word been my delight, 
when earthly joys were fled, my soul oppressed with sorrow's weight had sunk among the dead. Before I knew thy chastening rod, my feet were apt to stray. But now I learn to keep thy word. No wonder from thy way. Thank you. Be seated. The crack in the diamond widens. We'd begun in the message on last week to attempt an exposition of this text, Judges 8, 22 through 27. And in that message, from those verses, I tried simply to lay before your minds in that message, nothing more than to set before your minds what exactly happened. The record tells us of these events in Gideon's life and in the national life of Israel. We saw in verse 22 what he calls the men of Israel. Come, and out of great respect and admiration for Gideon and his labors, they came to establish in him a kingdom in perpetuity. We watched as he, in not only a noble spirit, just human nobility, but also in a righteous spirit, we watched him declare, decline that offer and for all the right reasons. We read in verse 23, he declared to them, the Lord shall rule over you. As glorious, noble, and blessed as that scene looked to us, as it unfolded before us, yet the scene changes suddenly in our narrative. And we watched last week in sorrow, beginning in verse 24, as Gideon turned from that most noble display of godliness to one that was fraught with every potential to breed evil, both in his own life and in the national life of Israel. He strikes, as I mentioned to you all last week, he strikes while the iron is hot, as we would use in our southern expressions. 
He strikes while the iron is hot to capitalize on that spirit of generosity, that feeling of great loyalty that they had toward him. And he sets before them a request for all the gold that was in the earrings of their enemies that they took prey. We saw that they responded in great abundance. Very willingly did they respond. And they brought more than just the gold that was in their earrings of their prey. They brought the gold that was on their camels and the purple garments that belonged to the, to the, to the princes and ornaments and collars and, and uh, all these things, chains and all were piled up and given to Gideon. Finally then, in verse 27 in the latter part, the record fast forwards suddenly 40 years and the sad fruit of Gideon's mistake is summarized in these brief words. And all Israel went thither a whoring. And the thing became a snare to Gideon. There is the danger for us this morning at this distance of time and unfamiliarity with the Hebrew language. <clears throat> there is the danger to miss the poignancy of this brief record. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit here uses two powerful words there in verse 27 in the Hebrew to convey to us the unintended horror of this tragic mistake. First it says that Israel went a whoring. That word in the Hebrew, zonal, literally translates to commit great, wanton, and continual adultery. Strong and others in their studies of Hebrew words point out the fact that this particular word in the Hebrew is almost never used to refer to a single act of fornication. It always conveys the idea of continual, repeated, great and wanton adultery. What a word. What a word to describe a tragedy of Gideon's mistake. Israel went a whoring. And then the second word that's given to us to help us understand the magnitude of this event, it says to Gideon, the thing became a snare. And it's a Hebrew word, mokasheh. It is literally a noose designed for catching animals 
unaware. Gideon never intended to open the door for all this harm. That word conveys to us clearly that this thing was taken by surprise. They were taken by surprise by this thing. Gideon was taken by surprise. He never meant to open the door for any harm. His intentions were only ever the most pure and noble. He said, Jehovah shall rule over you. And he had no other intentions. But this word in our text proves the unexpectedness of the tragedy that befell him and his household. It was a snare. It caught him unawares. Oh, all the lessons, the lessons that are to be gleaned from this text. But before I would do that, first, I would ask the question, what are we to learn from this awful record, all-filled record? Well, Many have been the diagnoses offered by the great doctors of the past. I started in my note-taking weeks ago. I made a page in which I wanted to, I kept recurring in the commentaries the word error. And I decided I'd just make a record of all those who referred to this act of Gideon as an error and how they diagnosed it. <laughs> I give you just a few of those. The writers of the pulpit commentary, which are many, some of them had this to say. What then was Gideon's purpose in making this costly epoch? We may infer from his proved piety that at all events his intention was to do honor to the Lord who had given him the victory. Then as he was not, then as he was now at the head of the state, though he had declined the regal office and as it was the special prerogative of the head of state to inquire of the Lord, he may have thought it was his right as well as a matter of great importance to the people that he should have the means ready at hand for inquiring of God. His relations with the great tribe of Ephraim may have made it inconvenient to go to Shiloh to consult the high priest there. And therefore he would have the ephod at his own city of Ophrah. Just as Jephthah made Mizpah his religious center in chapter 9 verse 11. Whether he sent for the high priest to come to Oprah or whether he made use of the ministry of some other priest, we have no means of deciding. The people, however, always prone to idolatry, made an idol of the ephod even though Gideon had no such intentions. And thus they diagnosed the error. Fawcett 
in his comments had this to say. Gideon made no image, nor did he expose the holy coat for worship. His error lay in his usurping the prerogative of the Aaronic priesthood by assuming the ephod as a permanent instrumentality for consulting Jehovah by means of the Urim and Thummim. You remember those words, the Urim and Thummim. Urim means light. Thummim means perfections. These were the two pieces on the high priest's ephod by which God spoke to his people, the light and the perfections. Says Fawcett, thus he drew away the people from the one lawful sanctuary and thereby undermined the theocratic oneness of Israel and paved the way for the nation's apostasy to Baal idolatry, which is spiritual whoredom after his death. Gideon's pretext whereby he justified his act to himself and others was probably the fact that Jehovah had manifested himself to him directly as he had not to any other ruler since Joshua. And thus he assumed, thus he assumed his right to the access to God. So Fawcett. Kyle and Delish have a diagnosis that's equally straightforward and concise. In diagnosing Gideon's error, they said the germs of Gideon's error, which became a snare to him and to his house, lie unquestionably deeper, namely in the fact that the high priesthood had probably lost its worth in the eyes of the people on account of the worthiness of its representative, un, of the unworthiness of its representatives, so that they no longer regarded the high priest as the sole and principal medium of divine revelation. And therefore Gideon, to whom the Lord had manifested himself directly, as he had not to any judge or leader of the people since the time of Joshua, might suppose that he was not acting in violation of the law when he had an ephod made and thus provided himself with a substratum or vehicle for inquiring the will of the Lord. His sin therefore consisted chiefly in his invading the prerogative of the Aaronic priesthood, drawing away the people from the one legitimate sanctuary and thereby not only undermining the theocratic unity of Israel, but also giving an impetus to the relapse of the nation into the worship of Baal after his death. This sin became a snare to him and his household. But the tendency to idolatry and to the worship of Baal had already become so strong in Israel that even Gideon, that distinguished hero of God who had been so marvelously called and who refused the title of the king when offered to him from genuine fidelity to the Lord, yielded to the temptation to establish for himself an unlawful worship in a high priestly ephod which had been prepared for his use and thus gave the people an occasion for idolatry. 
For this reason, his house was visited with severe judgments, which burst upon it after his death under the three-year reign of his son, Abimelech. Israel, says Condelish, had a strong tendency to idolatry already. And Gideon was responsible to have known that. Yet another, Matthew Henry, who's never at a loss for words, has said this, It was plausible enough and might be well intended to preserve a memorial of so divine a victory in the judge's own city. But it was a very unadvised thing to make that memorial to be an ephod, a sacred garment. I would gladly, says Henry, I would gladly put the best construction that can be upon the actions of good men. And such a one, we are sure Gideon was. But we have reason to suspect that this ephod had, as usual, a teraphim annexed to it. And that having an altar already built by divine appointment, which he erroneously imagined he might still use for sacrifice. He intended this for an oracle to be consulted in doubtful cases. Each tribe having now very much its government within itself, they were too apt to covet their religion among themselves. We read very little of Shiloh, and the ark there in all the story of the judges. Being fond of change and prone to idolatry and having some excuse for paying respect to this ephod because so good a man as Gideon had set it up, by degrees their respect to it grew more and more superstitious. So then I say to you that the almost universal consensus of Bible scholars throughout time is Gideon intended an ephod of his own, an ephod for personal use in direct discord with God's clear instructions. One commentator made a mention there. I do not have in my notes, but I had thought of it in writing my notes. There's an interesting point to be made that Israel was, as I said to you, inclined, as all these commentators said to you, Israel was always inclined, always inclined to idolatry, and Gideon was responsible to know that. Surely he knew that. His father's house, he came from a house that his father had built the local altar to false gods. He knew that. He had a responsibility to know that. So what are we to learn from all this tragic 
tale. I'll give you some lessons in no particular order, and I surely will not finish today. But in no particular order, I give you some lessons from this tragic story. Surely one lesson leaps from off the pages of this inspired record. One lesson whose theme is rehearsed time and time again in the sacred pages of your Bible. One lesson unavoidable is simply this. One whose warning we can never hear too often in our ears. The danger of material prosperity. There is a grave danger in the life of the believer of material prosperity. Oh, can I just preach this morning another man's sermon? Another good man's Sermon better than mine. Listen what he says. He said God has two ways of trying men. One is in the furnace of affliction. That the trial of their faith being much more precious than of gold. May be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. One, he says, is in the furnace of affliction. The other is in the fine refining pot of prosperity. And this is much the harder trial of the two. Affliction, he said, tends to humble and soften and subdue. But in prosperity, self-esteem, self-reliance, self-satisfaction, self-will, pride, and security are prone to spring up with a rank luxuriance. Disregard for the cares and feelings of others strengthens with the inordinate estimate of regard to a man's self. Can I read that again? Disregard for the cares and feelings of others strengthens with the inordinate estimate of the regard due to a man's self. Gideon disregarded the weakness of Israel in this act. Prosperity supplied him the means. The scripture lessons, says this preacher, the scripture lessons as to the dangers of prosperity and the snare which the possession of unbounded power is to men in general are very many and very striking in the scriptures, culminating in our Savior's sayings Matthew nineteen twenty three: A rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. So great is the danger of prosperity. This preacher points out that the latter part of David's reign 
compared with the first part of his life. The latter part of Solomon's contrasted with the beginnings of his reign. Uzziah, Joash, king of Judah, Amaziah, after his successful campaign in Edom, even good Hezekiah, after his successful, even good king Hezekiah, he said, all teach us the danger of prosperity. And the inability of the human heart to drink a full cup of success without intoxication. Hmm. No wonder Thomas Watson, somewhere around 1707, wrote and preached the crook in the lot. God would send a crook in a man's lot. To rescue him from this intoxication from drinking a full cup of success. If we turn to secular history, says this preacher, it is still the same story. Men of diverse characters and temperaments have all alike deteriorated under the influence of too much success in life. And shown themselves unfit to be trusted. With unlimited power. Nebuchadnezzar. Alexander the Great. Nero. Constantine. Charlemagne. Napoleon Bonaparte. All of these men of the most different characters. May all be cited as having shown in different ways and degrees. How hard it is for a man to pass through the refining pot of prosperity. Without bringing to light more or less the dross of a corrupt heart. It's an interesting and instructive inquiry. I agree. It is an interesting and instructive inquiry how far Gideon passed through this refining pot uninjured and with his religious character undimmed until now. We had occasion also to notice before the singular strength and perfect perfectness of Gideon's faith, the excellent fruits which it bore in practice, the humility and simplicity of purpose displayed by him, the docility and truth, trustful obedience, the entire surrender of himself into the hands of God without a thought for himself or a fear of the results which marked his course. All were of the highest caliber of human Excellence guided and informed by the Holy Spirit of God. It is not till this wonderful victory was consummated by the capture of the two kings that we can see any flaw in his character at all. And I mentioned that at that point in my preaching, in my in my exposition. I mentioned the flaw in the diamond, the crack in the diamond. 
started to show there. But when we come to the incident of the severe punishment of the men of Sukkoth and Benoah, when we come to the slaughter in cold blood of the captive kings and the plunder of their spoils, even when we have made every allowance for the manners and opinions of the times and given due weight to the circumstances of the case, it is impossible not to feel that certain dormant passions of pride and indecent joy born of overmuch prosperity had been aroused in his successes. Oh, what are we to do? What are we to do? I ask you, in the painful light of this danger, this lesson, the refining pot of prosperity. What are we to do? I answer, guard our hearts. Some would answer that question and say we ought to voluntarily submit to poverty. Not so. Not so. A man may experience external material poverty and his heart never be right. His heart never be right. What are we to do? Guard our hearts. Oh, said one commentator, it is by constant prayer that our faith must be kept alive. It is by resolute resistance to those manifold lusts which war against the soul that our spirit must be kept free for holy obedience and the eye of our mind kept clear to discern between the precious and the vile. We must keep a close watch against the first buds of those sinful dispositions in our hearts which are stimulated into growth by objects of carnal desire or by wrongs or insults or taunting words. And we must nip them in the bud by crucifying the flesh with its affections and lusts. And if we find ourselves prosperous in this world, if riches increase, if friends multiply, if all goes well with us, if the world smiles upon us, if we're rising in consequence, in power and estimation of men, if new sources of gratification are open to us and life puts on a gay and gaudy color of parade, then above all, it behooves us to be on our guard and maintain the supremacy of the love of God within us. Then let us humble ourselves before the cross of Christ. Let us bring the glories of the kingdom in full view. Let us bring the glories of the kingdom in full view till the glories of earth pale before them. Then let us strive more earnestly than ever to feel how immeasurably the pleasure of doing the will of God rises above the pleasure in ourselves 
of doing the world's bidding. Remind ourselves how far the happiness of obedience to God's law transcends the happiness of yielding to our desires. Such a victory over ourselves will be far more glorious than the conquest of 10,000 Midianites. And ours will be a richer booty than the richest falls of earthly kings. Oh, to humble one's own heart under the mighty hand of Christ. This is victory. This is riches. So much more could I say. So many more scriptures I looked at and wanted to go to. But I trust that on this singular point, God's Holy Spirit will do the preaching this morning. Oh no. (laughs) Riches in themselves are no sin. God pity those that have taken vows of poverty when their hearts have never been Set on Christ. But we must guard. We must guard our hearts. Such a victory, said this preacher, over ourselves will be so much more glorious. So many more scriptures. But I leave you this morning with that single lesson. I give to you lesson number two, and then I'll close for today. Because I've already spoken somewhat to this before last week. Lesson number two from this text. A whole catalog of good life. A whole life of holy service may be ruined by one unintentional mistake. One careless, thoughtless, not well considered mistake. A whole catalog of life, good life, a whole life of holy service may be ruined by one Unintentional mistake. I told you a story last week from that dear old man, Rick Stanziel, who told the story about the bridge builder and he robbed a bank. That story falls short to our text in that even in that story, the man chose to rob the bank. Gideon never chose to do any harm. He never set out to do anything to hurt Israel. His intentions were only ever good and noble. But he made a mistake because he did not adequately weigh his actions. What can we do in the light of this lesson? Weigh your actions. Weigh your actions. Oh, how often does the scripture counsel us with this wonderful word, consider. Consider. 
Psalm, uh, Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 6. He tells us to behold with perception. <laughs> what a challenge that is in just a few words. To behold things with perception. Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 1. He says to perceive with prudence. Perceive with prudence. Consider. Dear old Bush said, They made a means of practicing superstition and idolatry. They resorted to this instead of the true ephod to inquire of the will of God and thus gradually forsaking the place which Jehovah himself had ordained as the one seat of worship to such disastrous consequences. Listen now. To such disastrous consequences may one false step of a good man lead who fails to weigh well the issues of his best meant conduct. It's the difference between a man and a boy, isn't it? On a practical level. When we are young, when we are boys, when we are children, we rush into folly without a thought. Some in our families are more guilty than others. Some more prone to it than others. But part of becoming a man is to give consideration to your actions. And oh, how one unconsidered action of a good man, a good man, good man, what great tragedy may be the fruit of it. History is replete with examples, but I leave it to your heart for your consideration Consider your ways. Weigh your actions. Over and over again, the scripture admonishes us to these things. God willing, we'll take up there next week and continue to look at the lessons that may be harvested from this text. Stand with me again, if you will, please. Turn to number 690 and sing with me number 690. How oft, alas, this wretched heart has wandered from the Lord. How oft my roving thoughts depart, forgetful of his word. wretched heart has wandered from the Lord 
Thou of my roving thoughts depart, forgetful of his word. Yet sovereign mercy calls return, dear Lord, and may I come. My vow in gratitude I mourn. Oh, take the wanderer home. And canst thou wilt, thou yet forgive. And bid my crimes remove. And shall a pardon rebel live and speak thy wondrous love. Thy pardoning love, so free, so sweet, bless Savior I adore. Oh, keep me at thy sacred feet, and let me roam no more.